Welcome to a two-part episode of Being Human with ex-bomb disposal officer and change manager Ben Sawyer. Part one, which you're about to hear, will focus on Ben's time diffusing bombs and working with infiltration teams in Iraq and Afghanistan. Later this week, we'll release part two, which will focus on how he's taken some of these lessons from the military and is now applying it in corporate life, leading and managing change. So without further ado, welcome to part one. Ben Sawyer. Hello. <laughs> Ex-bomb disposal officer yeah. and change agent at the Oxford University Press. Welcome to Big Human. Oh, thank you. Did you always know you wanted to be in the army? Not always in the army. I think I always knew I wanted to be in the armed services. My dad was in the air force, granddad in the army, other granddad in the air force. So kind of family history of serving. Um, so I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do, but I guess bombs photo was on the list of things, but whether it was that or something else I wanted to do, I didn't really make up my mind until uh, university really. Okay. When I made it up time, yeah, definitely going to go for the army. And and were you one of these students who got some kind of scholarship through? I uni? I didn't know. Um, I deliberately chose not to uh, apply for one because if you have a scholarship at university, you're then committed to pre-work go straight to Sanders afterwards. So I didn't take a gap year between school and university, whereas I was sure as hell wanted to take one afterwards. And uh, in the event, I took like, eighteen months and um, I spent time off on. Uh, I was in the officer training corps, kind of like the reserves for university. Okay. Um, so after university, I went off and spent some time on army expeditions, uh, kayaking in Nepal. Um, so I spent five months out in Nepal, uh, kayaking various rivers and then uh, doing some climbing. And then seven months down in South America, just generally exploring. With, with the... Res- that wasn't with the army. That, that wasn't with the army. Myself, and then basically sat, ran out of sources of kind of loans and cash. So... Kind of came back and joined the army to pay off all those. Right, and presume was and how was the selection? Selection was quite difficult. Well, I I barely remember it now, but I remember it being quite difficult at the time. It was so they have the regular commissions board, and it's a basically a three day selection board, and it was I think multi day selection boards are more normal now in companies and stuff, but the army had done them for a very long time. I mean, I've read accounts from them in the Second World War. And it was, so it's a mixture of interviews and group debates and problem solving and physical tests and um, testing your bravery and kind of assault courses and kind of your, um, also your debating skills or, and then also your leadership skills. So they give you a task and then how do you lead a team through it? Right. So lots of imagination as well. So things like these barrels at islands sticking out of crocodile infested swamps, how are you going to get your team across it and things like that. So, Right. Yeah. Because I mean, I'm just thinking right now on, on British UK television, there's this um, SAS uh, program where right. they take people through a simulation of the SAS trap selection which, I, oh, okay. which is absolutely brutal i imagine so yes so. But, and and seems to be highly physical yes so, so but for for you it's interesting to hear that debating and more intellectual tests as well as the but that I, I guess that's it's slightly different because there they're looking for for ses selection they're taking trained soldiers and looking are you good enough to go into the ses here and now Whereas for officer selection, they're looking at often children. They're looking at the, you've got kind of 16, 17 year olds going through there, all the way through to people in their mid to late 20s. And they are being looked at for their potential to be leaders in the army because they're not going to go straight off and do something. They're going to, this is for acceptance into Sandhurst. And you're then going to do a whole year of leadership uh, training at Sandhurst. And then probably special to arm training, whether you're going to be infantry or logistics or something like that. And only then after kind of best part of 18 months of training, are you going to be letting their soldiers? Right. So it's very much the regular commission board, very much looking for your potential. Okay. Because there's still plenty of opportunity all through Sanders to weed you out. <laughs> okay. So did most of you then get through that through de- three days? Or? 
I can't. I twist. I can't remember um, how many people get through and how many because I passed it before going travelling. Okay. I there was no one I knew um, right. there when I went through. Right. Yeah. And so you arrive in this eighteen months. So Sandust is basically eleven months, I think. So yeah. So I started in uh, started January two thousand and one, and then commissioned in mid December two thousand and one. Right. And then went off uh, in the following January. Went off to I joined the Royal Logistic Corps uh, because that's where the counterterrorism bomb disposal teams were. So I joined the Royal Logistic Corps and I did my logistics training for four months before going to a movement control regiment. So logistic planning, um, kind of getting people in and out of countries, um, running ports and railways and things like that. Okay. And did you have an inkling before you? Before you went into Sandhurst, that bomb disposable, bomb disposable. I'm thinking nappies. I've got until I got to Yeah. So it, yes. Yeah. That was that was on your mind. That's what that's. I went to Sandhurst for the mind. That's what I wanted to go and do. Okay. And why that? Why the? Isn't that the most <laughs> likely to get you killed? Option? Um, I think it was a mixture of I, I grew up in Germany in the eighties, and the IRA threat there was very real, so. I mean, by the age of seven, I knew how to search under a car to check it was safe to actually get in the car. Um, seven? Yeah, yeah, because it's, I mean, if the car was parked outside the house, you couldn't just go outside and open the car to get a toy from inside the car. You had to you, you take a torch and a plastic bag and kneel down and have a quick check under the car to make sure it's safe before you open it. So this is, I'm sorry, this is in... Living, living. Yeah. My dad was in the air force, so we were living as a family out in Germany. In Germany, and and you had IRA cells very active, um, just over the border in Holland. So they would regularly come over and. Um, I have no idea because they knew that British, British forces, forces yeah, were so, there. Um, I mean, there was one the day my dad and I were sailing over. I think it was Vell Lakes. I can't remember. We were sailing over in Holland, and uh, the IRA assassinated a man and a boy. In a petrol station in the same town where we were off sailing. Um, I, th- I seem to remember, it was, I think they were Australian tourists, it was mistaken identity or something. But it wasn't unusual for there to be bombs or bomb threats. Um, uh, an officer's mess in the, was blown up and they would occasionally try and launch uh, improvised mortars over the, over the barracks walls. And then I think, I seem to remember also, I think it was mid 80s, also we had the threat from the um, from the Libyans uh, and their their associates because the Americans bombed Libya mm. and there was a heightened threat out there. So I remember having um, armed soldiers on the school bus because we lived on a British patch, so, um, a married patch that's where all the, the families lived and it wasn't actually on the airbase, the, but the school was on the airbase and we had armed soldiers on the airbase to escort us uh, through. And it just seemed perfectly normal. You'd, you'd have soldiers patrolling through the gar- through the back gardens or down the streets and that was just it was a normal part of growing up so did you did you perceive yourself living in fear no so it's just it's quite funny you know, hunt the soldiers in the back garden or and it, it it didn't we didn't know any different i mean i was, I was a young child and it just isn't so that, when you're isn't adult... that how everyone grew up <laughs> just, so you're going so out to the car with your torch you're not thinking no, there might be a bomb here. No. It's just it's just part of the routine. It's something you do. It's something right. you do the same as getting a key to go and open the car. It's just it was part of opening the car. Oh my God. Um, after that, we moved to Hamburg, where that kind of we were away from that environment. So suddenly, we didn't need to be so vigilant. So suddenly, that was kind of the taste. And it, and it, the, the threat levels went up and down. It, I'm not saying it's like the four years that we were living there, she was searching the car every day. It would be, you get your parents remind you that it was, yeah, we didn't really, as a child, you don't really understand threat levels and things like that. Yeah. But they said, no, you need to be careful at the moment. Or, um, and you pick up on how concerned your parents were as well. Right. And, and so do you think, I mean, I don't want to, Hard to not try to become a psychoanalyst here, but there's something about this desire to make. Do you think there was some subconscious desire to make the world safer or something? Um, I think there's a desire to. At that age, I wasn't decided whether it's army or air force that I wanted to go, but there was a desire that I wanted to serve. I wanted to be part of 
what my dad and what my family had been doing. Mm. So, yeah, but not necessarily all the fixed on bomb disposal then. I think that came later when kind of seeing seeing footage of people in big green suits walking down the road towards car bombs in Northern Ireland and thinking, that looks quite cool. And also having a technical bent. Um, I, I studied aeronautical engineering at university and it, it struck me as it's, it's a highly technical challenge. Okay. So you get, so you're, so you get into the logistics core. Yeah. Y- uh, and they're and they're and they're active. And are you were sort of immediately sent to Northern Ireland, or no? So I I spent my first eighteen months in a normal logistics regiment. Um, of that time, I spent I think eleven months in the Balkans. So in Kosovo, uh, Bosnia, Bosnia, Croatia, some time down in Greece. So working all that part of the world, and then I was uh, I volunteered to go and do the Amish Tech Officers course, which is an 18-month course that teaches you, well, Amish Tech Officers, they are, they are bomb disposal operators, but they also do a lot more. So they do everything about how the army stores and uses ammunition. They investigate accidents. They get involved with how we dispose of munitions or um, if you're going on operation, kind of what safety you how can you repackage things to reuse it. Just everything and anything to do with ammunition. Ammunition tech. Yeah. yeah, and um, so the first, so it's a what, uh, 18 month course, so the first six months or so are at Shrivenham at the Army uh, University there, learning kind of maths, the the South physics, of the chemistry, yes, mm. and that's all about the technical side of explosives, you know, kind of like chemical reactions and the maths or ballistics, like how do, how do shells fly, how do you account for gravity and air pressure, and that, the way artillery works. So right the way through all the, all, on the, the science side. And then you move up to Kyneton, so up near Banbury for the next phase, which is all more, how, it's, it's still highly technical, but it's more about directly, this is what the army does. And that's everything from how you investigate accidents that involved explosives, how do you, um, you, you have to study, you have to study and learn about all the different types of munitions explosives the army has in service. So how all the different fuses work, um, all the makeup of guided weapons and how they all work. And then part of that, the course there is how do you deal with improvised explosive devices, but also how do you deal with um, chemical munitions, things like leftover from the First World War. So if someone finds a, if they're digging a golf course or something, and they find an old storage site of First World War munitions, or sometimes things wash it up at the Irish Sea, then it's the Royal Logistics Corps who go and deal with that. Right. So that's lots of time dressed up in great big kind of inflatable suits, kind of carrying oxygen tanks around the place and a generally miserable experience inside those. Right. And that's and that's your your train for for eighteen months. Is that another is that another case of people getting weeded out through the process or people some people fail the course, yes. So you're being you're you're doing lots of exams through and if you've I think if you fail three exams then you're off the course. So some people did leave the course and um, what would it what would it be they, they didn't have the nerve for it or was it more intellectual no that that was more intellectual okay um or also just kind of i guess their their mental grit kind of how much how hard are you willing to work for this because okay. a lot of it is just have you are you going to sit down the evening and just learn this stuff because it's there's no two ways around it you just got to learn it the the bomb disposal side, because a lot of the a lot of the ammunition tech officers who qualify then won't go to do bomb disposal. They'll go to supply and logistics regiments and do about ammunition. And you, if you qualify from the course for bomb disposal, then you may go off to um, eleven um, explosive ordnance disposal regiment, that's a raw logistic core regiment that does all the counterterrorism bomb disposal, or did it's, it's expanded a bit now. But at the time, they did all the counterterrorism stuff, and you'd be qualified for what we call joint service work, and that is work in a low threat environment. So it's where the bombs tend to be quite simple; they tend to be what you see is what you get, and you, as the bomb service operator, tend not to be a target. And you're in a more controlled environment. So it's in the UK; you've got police who can control the cordon. You're not being shot at when you're doing it. 
Ah, I didn't even consider that. So, so when you say the bomb disposal officer is a target, what do you well, mean? Well, that's when you start going to the high threat course. So once you've got some experience doing the joint service level, kind of working in the UK, you could then go and do the high threat course. Um, and the high threat course was aimed at people to go and work in Northern Ireland, Iraq, Afghanistan, where quite often you as a bomb disposal operator can be the target. Often the device you see isn't the device you're actually, it's not the only device. So there could be kind of a, the device you see is to bring you into the area and there could be another device to target you or it could be some, a device underneath it. So if you lifted it up, there's a device under there to target you as the operator or it could bring you in so there's a sniper waiting to actually shoot the operator. So it's, you've got a lot more to consider around the threat and around what's going on. And also you may have difficulties holding a call and you may have to work a lot faster because the call is being shot at. So there's the far, it's far more complex environment. And also you're often in high threat areas, you can't get, if you're in doubt, you can't actually get on the phone and ask for a more experienced operator to come and give you a help. It's going, you're there, you're it. Whereas if you're in the UK and you see something like, oh, I don't like the look of this, or I don't understand this, you can call your duty officer and they can give you advice or come out and be there and kind of be your mentor okay. for it. Whereas in advance, uh, um, Iraq and Afghanistan, you don't have that option. So, and that's why it's the advanced, um, so the high threat course, uh, basically, I think, at the time I was going through, I had about 10% pass rate. Oh, wow. So, right. You're so, by, but it did mean by the time you passed it, you knew you were ready. Okay. And, and did you, so you, did you do some work with low threat first or did you go straight into the high threat? I, I qualified as a, as a kind of joint service, so low threat, but I never actually did any, I was based in Germany. Um, so, I didn't actually do any devices at that level. So, the first time I dealt with something that was a live device was in Northern Ireland as a high threat operator. So that, was that quite unusual for, for somebody who had had no real experience with the device, then getting through the course which only had a 10% um, pass? Not hugely and... unusual. No. Right. Um, the, some of it was confidence, but a lot of it was passing the course. I mean, I failed the course the first, my first time I did it. And this, okay. I guess it was the first time I, it was a real shocker actually, the first time I failed anything really. And that was, it really made me question had I made the right choice because I bear in mind by this stage I've done a, a year at Sandhurst, kind of um, 18 months in a logistic regiment, 18 months on a course, um, and then kind of the best part of six months in my regiment learning the ropes. So I spent a lot of time building up to this my threat course and I went off and failed it. And so, so actually I'm not aware that's something stopping me from doing what of my ambition was to be on the people in the big suits walking down the road. Yeah, right? yeah. And that's it's do I well, it's then reappraising the world. Do I stop and is this not me? Do I get out and go do something else? Or in the end, I've actually no idea work harder at this. So I knuckled down when I went back the next time, worked a lot, lot harder, uh, made sure I didn't have any other distractions and really focused and met every, every time I was doing so, even kind of in the shower, you're thinking through scenarios, kind of at dinner, you're talking to people who've done it before and getting, picking their brains and just everything and in, working late at night on practicing what you can do at weekends, working as well towards it, just focusing everything onto passing the course. And that was, that was that was in your thought process, was it? You, you Absolutely, spotted yes. lots of ways in which you weren't fully focused. Yes. Time out. Yeah. Right. So you you got your stripes and and you so you said Northern Ireland so you're thinking my goal is to do this in Northern Ireland. Well, that's when I first joined, yes. But then when I joined the army, Iraq, uh, I guess Afghanistan had happened, but we weren't in Helmand. We really had small numbers on the first set of operations there. Um, we haven't invaded Iraq yet. Um, the invasion of Iraq happened when I was on uh, just I started the ATO course, so they. When I when I joined the army, yeah, the ambition was not mine. That's where Bombsos was at. Obviously, moving on, then once I finished the course, I didn't want to go to Northern Ireland, where I was desperate to get to was Iraq. That's where the action was. Right. Um, but I I went and did um, a few. I think I did four or five months in Northern Ireland, 
and then came back, had a few months rest, and then went out to Iraq. And did, is that where you encountered your first bomb? In this, Northern, on Ireland. Northern Ireland. Yeah. So talk us through that, the, the first... Um, it was rather insignificant. It was just, all it was, it was a, it was a pipe bomb that was being put through the uh, front door of a pub. So it was just a case of explaining it, dismantling it, and then collecting everything for evidence. But what... But how are, you, how are you feeling approaching this pipe bomb then? Um, okay, because I, I'd sent the robot in, I could see it was just a pipe bomb. So it was just, I've done loads and loads and loads of these in training. Okay. And to be honest, it was just, yeah. So that's how it works. You sent in, I'm imagining a little ET type robot. Yes, yeah, so we had uh, what we call, um, so we had what we call the wheelbarrow. Okay. Um, and I think, it, I think it came out because it, um, the robot was first, or the bomb disposal robot first was kind of very heath bomb series. It was invented in Northern Ireland and it wasn't by scientists, it was by some bomb disposal operators and figure out what they can do. And they, I think the first one was actually designed on the chassis of an electric wheelbarrow. Okay. Um, and then it modified and just kept the name of the wheelbarrow. Okay. So, yeah, you know, whenever you could, so one of the principles of Bob's disposal is use remote when you can. So, if you've got the opportunity to use a robot, you're much better off using a robot to do whatever you can rather than actually going near it by yourself. So, you're sending this wheelbarrow into the pub, looks at it, have, it's a pipe have, bomb. Have a look, see yeah. what's there. Mm. And, but then it's one as well, actually, there's nothing we can do with the robot then, so it's just, but we've confirmed what it is. Because you have witness statements, you have people talking to you about what it is, but People can be what they've seen can often be isn't actually what's there. Okay. So there's some things questioning technique about trying to actually mitigate their kind of their cognitive bias to what they've seen. Have they mentally recorded what they've something they've seen on TV as opposed to what's actually there? Or have they just seen, oh my god, this is just something wrong, it's it's actually a roll it could just be a rolled up parcel that's come through and this is like, oh my god, pipe bomb. Like it. So until you actually confirm what's there. Okay. Okay. And and then a pipe bomb, that's a pipe stuffed with explosives with yes. some kind of detonation device and you yes. had seen enough of them that it's a simple case yeah, so of pulling it apart yeah. in the right way. So we've used x-rays a lot to mm. see what's um, see what's happening there. Okay. So there's that's so, so, and you you didn't have a, a sense that there wasn't sort of high nerves when you were doing it. Uh, no, not really. No, right. Um, I think the, the biggest nerves wasn't actually about the device; it was about doing the task right, right, uh, and making sure they got all the information before I finished that my report was going to be right. So, yeah, it's. Um, I think the. I think there was no real concerns about doing it. I think there was more concerns doing some of the stuff I did in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, predominantly because um, less less assistance from robots are often having to, and also less certainty about what's there. So, what was the first time you were faced with something <laughs> where you were you really were nervous then? Probably when I. <laughs> In fact, probably when I had to do something that was against the rules. Um, so I was out in Iraq um, and a British armoured vehicle had been uh, destroyed, quite a few people killed. And I'd gone out there to, uh, one thing, gather evidence, but also to clear the area. And we found one to go off to, and then found there was a second device. So if there's one device there, it's likely the other device has been put in by the same people. So I dealt with most of the second device and I wanted to, we, we need to get the evidence, but where we are, the cordon was being shot at, it was near a place called the Shear Flats, it was a really horrible part of Manager. And the infantry wanted to pull out as soon as possible because it was just, it was getting really quite hairy for them. They were like, a lot of them were getting shot at. So they told me, right, we're leaving in a few minutes. That's it, we're gone. And I had the choice where I could see the main charge of some artillery shells from the 
um, this second device and this table around it and getting it in there. I've dealt with the uh, the trigger actually. Now, by the rules, I should use the robot or use a, uh, a rope, basically set up a line to actually pull these out of the hole from a distance to make sure there's nothing underneath. Okay. So it means that you, if they can't target you, because they can only target you by what you do. And I didn't have time to do that because we were going. So I had the choice I could either just put some explosives on this and blow them up so that they can't reuse them. But that means we lose all the forensic evidence and any chance to actually find the forensics for the people who have killed the British soldiers. Um, or we, we go. And uh, basically, what I, did, I took the risk of, oh, there's the forensics here. I know I haven't lifted, I'm the only bomb surgeon operator working in this area. I haven't lifted it, I haven't done anything wrong, I haven't set any pattern of lifting things out of holes. My predecessor would have told me if he'd done anything like that. Um, so, sorry, what do you mean, setting patterns? So, um, so, we never lift anything out, we never lift a charge out of a hole by hand. Okay. Because if you do it once, chances are someone will see you doing it, and the next time you try and do it, there'll be a bomb under, another bomb okay. underneath it with a pressure release. So you, you, you try not to set any patterns that means they can target you. Okay. So I knew my predecessor, so I took the risk that, okay, it's worth it this once. So I lifted them by hand and put them in the wagon and we took them back to get them on the forensics. Taking a massive risk that there wasn't a yes. device. But there was no reason for there to be a, it was a, it was a calculated risk because there was no reason for there to be a device underneath because I was the only operator in the area I hadn't lifted anything out of a hole. Yeah. I knew my predecessor hadn't lifted anything out of holes because he would have told me. So there was no reason for anything to be there. But once I'd done it, there was then a reason for there to be something under there. So I then made sure that I phoned, as soon as I got back in, I told my technical command structure and I told, made sure I got in contact with the other operators on the other side of town. And it went into my handover notes so that everyone knew I'd done something that was against our SOPs, I've done yeah. something wrong, like wrong but for the right reasons, um, so that they all knew that I'd now set that pattern that it's probably not safe to do it for the next few months at least. Right, okay. So we just have to be extra careful after that to really use a line and use ropes and be seen to do this as well. Right. That's a, that, that, it's fascinating. I had no idea before we just had this conversation that Sometimes the intended target is the bomb disposal officer, and that's the especially in Northern Ireland. It was there were a, a lot of there were a lot of efforts there to um, kill ATOs. Um, ATO, that's so a, ammunition tech officer. So that was ammunition so tech officer. Was, yeah. I guess what you know is the bomb disposal operator. Yeah, it's kind of called people call you ATO. I mean, certainly when I was up in Baghdad, I, I would imagine most people I worked with there didn't actually know my name was Ben. It was just I was just ATO. <laughs> <laughs> was... Right, and it's always one of you, right? It's 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 you. It's it's the one disposal making that lone march towards the bomb. I suppose, which so... is in popular imagination. There's only one of you who walks down the road. Yes. However, you work. So most of the time, you work as a team. So you'd have you as as the operator, you'd lead the team. You'd have your number two, who is. Um, would be in charge of preparing all your equipment. They drive the robots, they load all your weapons, and they're also good sounding board for bouncing ideas off because they are normally quite experienced as well. And you do a lot of, I mean, certainly I did a lot of thinking aloud with my number two, so I would be thinking my process through um, verbally as I'm drawing it up or as I'm talking about it. And my number two is kind of monitoring what I'm doing. So I'm boss, do you agree? Yeah, that's a great idea. Especially when you get more and more tired, if you've been a couple of days without sleep, then it becomes even more important to have them as a sounding board. Right. And then we'd have an electronic countermeasures expert as well, who's kind of um, there from raw call signals, and they're an expert in, um, so I guess it's jamming for want of a better word, um, radio signals and what type of radio frequencies might be used. To detonate the yes, to detonate, detonate the bomb. So that's when how okay. can we, how can we protect ourselves against radio control bombs? Okay, and and presumably in some cases you're not sure whether this is a sort of physically detonated or, or radio. Uh, yes, so sometimes you often you can get a good idea for what it is by 
you know what's going on in that area, you know who operates in that area, you do a lot of questioning of the people who found it um, to figure out what have they seen, have they set any patterns, who are they targeting, because if you can get an idea for who it's targeting and why, then you've got a good idea. And also, are there lines of sight? So there's no, something's not going to be remote control if there's no way to see into that area. Yes. So there are, there's a lot of questioning and thought process that goes into doing a thrust assessment of what's down there. So a lot of the time you actually, you've got a really good idea of what's down there before you walk down there through your understanding of the yeah. area and what's yeah. going on. Yeah. No, okay. So those are kind of the teams. I worked in teams like that in Bajra in Northern Ireland. And then my work in Baghdad and Afghanistan was just working as an individual with, but that was someone that rather than responding to devices that people have found out on the road, something like that to come to clear them. I was working as teams who were going out um, to try and track down bomb makers or high value targets. And I would go with them to clear booby traps on the way into the target, but also to, but if we found something we could go around it, then we'd go around it, we wouldn't clear it if we didn't need to. Okay. And also then dealing with explosive remnants if it's on target, so it might be that um, one of the targets may have been wearing a suicide vest or it's a bomb making factory and there's kind of a, uh, a car bomb in various stages of completion, so it's dealing with that side as well. Right, right. Well, one of the things you, you, you struck me when we talked about you working with your team there is this you're thinking out loud mm. and you may come on later to your role as a change agent but that idea of working out loud thinking out loud is I think really important you know, in leadership in general and especially when we're, we're seeking to to change or transform the situation around because you want to people but bring people in on the thought process right and absolutely contribute yes. uh, yeah I think it's, it's really important it makes for a, it makes for a much stronger team as well because for one thing, it means that your team members aren't sitting there passive, waiting for you to give them direction. It's they know what you're intending. And uh, one thing they can maybe add, add something to it or tell you if you're being, um, being driven more on because you're too tired or you've got the wrong end of the stick. But also they kind of catch you that, oh, he's intending it, I need to get that bit cut out. And they're, they're kind of working kind of in parallel with you yeah. rather than you having to make your decision and then go and do something else. Yeah. Yeah. And it reminds me a lot about the, I don't know if you've come across the book by David Marquette, Turn the Ship Around. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I love it. Brilliant. Yeah, so, exactly. In fact, I think I read it after your recommendation. Okay. All right. Yes. Um, yeah, I was, I think it was, it was interesting because it was the, the leap to where he ended up, I guess, wasn't as great a leap as for I, I was kind of gobsmacked at the situation they were in before, but I think it was different um, leadership doctrine. And also, the US Navy at the time when he was writing, uh, I don't know what the US Navy does now, but certainly at the time they weren't orientated around mission command. And um, so, mission command is kind of British Army doctrine where you don't tell people, you tell people what you want them to achieve. Oh, sorry not how you want them to achieve it. So you give them a mission, you give them their constraints, the left and right of arc, and then they can figure out how to do it. And one of the big things, obviously, you're telling them what your their mission was, what your intent, what you're trying to achieve, and how their mission fits in with what you've got to achieve. Yeah, and what was key, wasn't it, also in the culture that he created, was that he encouraged everybody else to then yes. express their intent. Absolutely. Whereas the US Navy at the time weren't doing that. It's very much, you're the leader, you tell people what to do, and then they tell other people what to do, and it's not. So I guess for them it was a huge leap to go from where they were to where they ended up. Whereas I think he he did actually take it past where we probably were in, in the army. Um, in Well, in most parts of the army, I guess in the... It would be. I, I wish I'd read it at the time. Actually, there were some interesting things in there. So, but it, did it, you encourage your men to also think out loud? As as part of the culture. Yeah, I guess not actively, but it became a way that we worked. And it depended on what they were doing. It depended. On, so the ECM operator, if he was working, ETM. so electronic countermeasures operator. So the guy who's 
yeah. looking for Raven Fox. If he was working out loud, then most of us wouldn't understand what he was on about. <laughs> um, he, he was really a deep technical subject matter expert. Um, however, there were certain checks that he would be doing on the election cameras where he would um, kind of be doing things out loud to confirm so that we can hear what he's doing. So, and I, actually, I think that also comes out in um, turn the ship around when he's talking about people before they're doing things physically actually giving a narrative of what they're doing. Yes. And again, that's, um, that was all built in. There's also the element of, I think, uh, being able to test and rehearse things. So, for example, uh, when I took over my team in Basra, I was asking, uh, the we had an infantry team who were attached to us, who were basically the bodyguard. They, they got us to and from the target uh, area and would protect us from there. And the corporal in charge, and he was pretty much in charge of the plan for if I'm down at the target end and something happens, I, I've been shot or the device has functioned, I, I need to get some medical attention. He leads the effort. He takes over there to actually make get me back and get me off the hospital. And we did on a whiteboard about, okay, what's the plan? That's our first trip of the team. And, explain how they would drive up one of their um, armoured Land Rovers and two of them would get out and haul me up into the back of it and then they'd drive back and then how also other people providing protection and things. Well, okay, let's try it. So we went to a quiet bit of the airfield we're based on and I lay down in the bomb suit and the bomb suit's best part of 100 pounds, um, probably over 180 pounds. That's a lot of weight to try and haul up um, Probably, uh, and I guess the side of the, the back door of one of these was as far as a metre off the ground. And they couldn't actually pick me up and drag me into the back. Um, so it's a great plan on paper. Um, and everyone was aware of their cardio plan. We never actually tried it. Um, but all right, we best think again. So, but rather than me saying, oh, I, I had nothing to do, so it's all right. You've got to figure out how to do this. So I lent them a, they had a spare bomb suit, so they started to figure out what to do. And they, they worked out sort of basic different contingency plans then, so that if we had armoured vehicles near us, then they would get one of the armoured vehicles to come forward because they had a much lower ramp. So it's easy to drag me a much wider door. Or the other one, and then in the back of both our both of their um, land rovers, they rigged up pulley systems. Um, that were already in their setup, so that with a, uh, a leash on it, so that if they needed to hoist me into there, they could just run a leash around me and hoist me up or push them and shove, just drag me in the bomb suit back. Right. Um, but they had basically, then we set up and rehearsed lots of different ways of doing it. Yeah, yeah. I think it's actually that it was, it was having that luxury to be able to test things. Um, whereas rather than just building this process and then think it will work. Yeah, which is, which is, which is a very, very common theme now in a lot of the guests that we've had on this show is test and learn approach, mm. uh, you know, learn by doing, yeah. rather than this sort of make a bunch of assumptions and then build the master plan. It's no actually. Anyway, it was highly interesting. We, we, after that, it was one of the things we trained. And we, there were lots of things we trained for. And if we weren't on the ground, then every day we had a, basically we, we had a, our daily program of, we couldn't assume we were going on the ground, literally. So we, we would sit around waiting for calls. So every day we had our program of, um, at these times we're going to clean weapons, equipment maintenance, um, we're going to do training, so there's a, there's a lot of cross-training. Um, so things like the number two, so the guy who drives the robots and loads of weapons, him training up the infantry on how they can help him out, the uh, vice versa, the infantry taking down to the firing agency, training my team kind of on. Um, I've been there game for shooting and things like that. So, and then also training the team to react to situations. So. I mean, some of the most dangerous points are when you're actually trying to drive there. So anti-ambush drills and things like that, how we're going to react. Uh, yeah, because I guess that's a common tactic in the enemy. If you've laid the bomb, you know there's going to be someone coming to try and yeah, dispose of it. Or yeah. you, you, you can be just you're driving down the wrong road at the wrong time. Right. 
So, yeah, it's, it's con constantly training and constantly, I mean, very much during, after each training iteration, there'll be a, a debrief, and the debrief isn't one way, it's not me saying, right, this went bad, this went well, it's, it's everyone's got something to say, everyone's got something to add. If someone spotted a mistake, then likely as not, it'd be on them, well, how do they solve this then? And really pushing it out to the, uh, the team members to actually come up with solutions. And how safe would they be to critique your actions? Fine, it was, it, um, yeah, we weren't just all precious about it. I mean, that's part of the thing of, I mean, even operation, even out of ground, it was part of the point of thinking aloud was that, especially, not so much the infantry, uh, because they're not kind of really experts in that area, but my number two and my ECM operator, yeah, they would be permanently questioning what I'm doing, either from a, do you really think that's a great idea to to make sure that they understand what I'm about to go and do? That's interesting because we, we were talking. Uh, one of the guests on the show was Amy Edmondson, who's done a lot of the pioneer work on psychological safety, and she brings up examples in a in, in a surgical reign, realm. A lot of the issue with uh, well, a contributor death rates in, uh, in 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 operations environment, uh, mm. surgical operations, is nurses and junior clinical staff not feeling confident enough to challenge the doctor. Now, Matthew Syed writes about that quite a bit of black box thinking when he's, um, I think one of the, right at the start of the book, he gives a case study of where there's a nurse can see that the anaesthetist and the doctor are doing something wrong. I think it's, I think it's that way around. And, but didn't feel confident to interrupt and ended up with the patient dying on a quite a minor operation. And it's, he then compared it with well, one of the comparisons brought out then was how you used to have a similar sort of attitude for aircrew in airline, where the captain was God, and I think it was the, it may have been the Manchester disaster. It was one of the disasters where the captain had parked the aircraft and told everyone to evacuate from the wrong side because he got a bit of cognitive overload, misread the dials, and actually said. Oh, the other side's on fire. Was the crew looking out the window to see it got it wrong, and actually the side, the side they was sank was on fire, and then the flames were blowing across the aircraft. But they were all, they were more scared of the captain than they were of the. A bit like your example, that you're more scared of the write up yeah, for your yeah. boss than getting the pipe. Um, right. So yeah, so the, I think there were many things that, um, and there was another air disaster I think in the states that he brought out about again. Um, how the crew worked together and the aircraft in the airline industry worked very hard to actually start changing crew behaviors so to give confidence to kind of junior co-pilots or uh, junior cabin crew to actually um, challenge what the captain was saying and also to make it even necessity so that pushing them in simulated environments where they deliberately make it so they have to then training them all like that but look, so, so I think some NHS areas and some medical areas are starting to look at that. Um, but also from what Matthew started saying is also the acceptance of when something happens, it's an investigation. So in the air, again, in the air industry, if there's a crash, there's that complete kind of no blame culture of, right, we need to get to the bottom of this, we need to learn the lessons. And even if they're from the misses, pilots will get in, they won't get in trouble if they report they nearly did something wrong because they can investigate, well, why do you, how can we stop someone nearly getting this wrong in the past? Whereas they nearly get something wrong and don't report it, then that's more problematic. Yeah. Whereas in the NHS, there's a lot of uh, medicine as well, but from what Matthew Syed was saying, it's, there's, a, there's often the ethos of, oh, it just happens if a person just died. It's, they shoot it in isolation and um, it, they then don't learn the right lessons from it. Right. And so did you find that you had to take yourself on in any way to ensure that that safety was maintained? Was that conscious in your mind then? Um, I don't think I was seeing it from that point of view. I think there was the constant drive to be better at it, which then would drive safety. So there was con the constant training. Um, and also trying, so things like in Northern Ireland, um, one of my friends was at a different detachment. So we were taking turns to visit each other's detachment and the other person was set up a training scenario. 
So, and you kind of making the speech as difficult as possible. It is, do you, you're getting, do you always pushing to learn more? And it'd be, it'd be it from watching one of your mates operate and see how they deal with it through to talking scenarios through to things like in Baghdad where I didn't have a number two, I didn't have an ECM, uh, electronic countermeasure operator to talk to. I was the only bomb storage operator in our team. But on the camp, there were other bomb storage operators with the other teams. Um, so we used to, kind of once a week or so, hang out. And because we worked predominantly work nights, if we went on a mission, then we'd meet up for midnight, a midnight meal and chat about who's done what, who's seen what, who's heard what, um, how to deal with it, and just swapping, um, swapping anecdotes and swapping ideas. Um, sometimes looking to see, oh, okay, I haven't heard about that way. Can you show me and then see what kit they've got? And so we and constantly kind of trying to grow your knowledge base. Yeah, and I can see that and how how that peer sharing works for you to grow your knowledge base. But it's it's particularly interesting to me that you, it seems like even without consciously working at it, you achieve quite a high level of psychological safety, to put it in those terms. That yes. your, your guys on your team are quite happy to tell you, I think you're doing that wrong. Yes, sir. Would they say? Or, uh, or I don't probably, know. I'm probably not on the ground, no. This um, bed boss. Or, boss. Yeah. Right. I mean, but also different styles of, I mean, and that would be different styles of leadership around the So things like that, that bomb special team in Basha, it was all quite informal. Um, I'd call my team members by their first name, they'd just call me boss. Um, there was a lot of chat going back, a lot of banter. And that worked. It was a small, small, highly professional team. Whereas when I then commanded later on, much later in my career, I commanded a squadron of about 180 pioneers. Very different relationship. Um, now, they're still highly professional people, but it's a very different relationship. I wouldn't, they, it very much, uh, I'd be calling them by their, their surname, um, different style and different style of leadership and different way of attaining things. So probably not so much safety there, not so much psychological safety. No, but it's also a different environment. Um, and they would have, it's also different, There's probably more of an element there of transactional leadership rather than close. It, if you've kind of got a, a kind of spectrum, kind of transformational transactional mm-hmm. kind of spectrum. Um, also, you have to do bits of both all the times, but it kind of tends to be more to transactional. Um, and some of that is to do with the people that you're working with. So maybe some of the more junior, you've got a lot more very junior, very young soldiers. Um, also, some of the educational backgrounds, it's maybe you can't give that they've still got to earn that level of trust whereas the bomb social team are working with in iraq they were much they were kind of corporals they're more experienced more senior they were i guess they they found their way already so you're not still not trying to mold them in much that way so you can give them a lot more freedom because you've they've earned that trust Okay. And you've also earned that, you've earned that trust, so it's, it's more, but also in operations, there's also, there's always a very different way of the, the team's work between being in barracks back in the UK and being on operations abroad. Yeah, and you're living together and, yes, yeah, I must make, in fact, you t- we might touch on this later, the, mm. the chapter you've written for the, for the, for the leadership book, but, uh, okay, that, so, so you've got that strong bond with each other yes even outside of the operational uh, arena yeah which i suppose you know just thinking back to dave, dave david marquette and turn the ship around where even though they're all living together on the same submarine yes. right couldn't get much more close in terms of yes. living together, there was still quite a lot of reverence and uh reticence about speaking up and challenging authority so yes. it's so it's clearly not the fact that just by putting people living together, you're going to get high trust and high levels of psychological safety. It's the other factors at play. Yes, but also I think it's slightly different scales are there as well. It's a lot easier to be more intimate and less reverential when you've got such a small team. Yeah. Um, so the team is very small. And also, I think 
I mean, even especially when you kind of read stories from Northern Ireland in the 70s and 80s and stuff like that, I think it's always been that thing of kind of bomb supposed to be, I don't know, I don't know not democratic maverick, but I guess less, it's not kind of your shouty, shouty, shouty army. It's more, yeah. um, it's, it's, it's always been slightly different. Mm. But you could still, I could still easily envision a scenario where somebody in your role becomes revered at some level and uh, there, there might be a situation where people are less. <coughs> I don't think the other people would let them be revered. <laughs> so, you don't think so? No. It, there's, um, I think there's always quite a healthy amount of kind of cynicism and piss take. But uh, I don't, I think if someone took themselves too seriously, I don't think they'd love So you reckon that would be Okay. That, in that trade. Okay, interesting. Um, but you. Oh, sorry. There, I think some of the majors are also, that maybe, the, I guess the educational level, I mean, there are, a, a lot of the soldiers in the bomb disposal teams, they are. Um, a lot of them would have A levels, not a huge amount of degrees. I mean, one of my number two, so one of my wheel barrel drivers in Germany, he had a master's degree in chemical engineering. Um, my warrant officer had not your average wheel barrel driver degree. Yes, uh, warrant officer had a law degree. So it's the, there's very highly educated uh, people as well. Yeah, yeah, but I mean, I get. I can kind of see how that might contribute to mutual trust, but I can also envisage, you know, highly ed people who are highly educated, but still there's, mm. you know, psychological, psychological safety is not high. It's also, I think, the, the passion for also the number two course to operation, I that, that wasn't easy as well. So, I mean, people who were there, they worked very hard to get there yeah. and to get onto one of those teams. So it wasn't just a kind of past section to get into the army and then they were sent out to Iraq. These people had actively wanted to be on the bomb disposal team and actively had to work really hard to actually get out there. Right. So even to be on your team was a major achievement. Was to... Well, not it's not an achievement to get on my team, no, but, but to get, to, get into to, uh, to be qualified as a um, a number two or a tri-county measure on a yeah. high team. Yeah. That was yeah. That would take a lot of work and experience and dedication and. Again, hard courses in there and right to pass. Mm. And did all of the guys you worked with get out yeah. alive? I mean, did yes. did you all make it? Yes. And and were there instances of bomb disposal teams who who didn't? Um, predominantly in Afghanistan, yes, quite a few. Okay. Um, so, I mean, uh, uh, yeah, quite a few uh, bomb disposal operators were killed in Afghanistan, mm. um, and also. Some number twos, and it, so a lot of uh, bomb disposal team members were killed. Mm. And what tended to be the pattern there? Where um, all sorts. So I think one of the one of the linked things is tiredness. Um, so you had uh, Oz, Oz Schmidt, um, Dan Reed, things like that. So uh, one of the overarching things is normally they've been operating for a long time. They've done lots of devices, very, very tired. Um, yeah, and you make them, it's almost inevitable you start making mistakes when you're really that tired. Okay. So it's just levels of exhaustion. So a lot of it was, well, it was too many bombs, not enough operators. So you end up operating, operating, operating. And were you fortunate in that you didn't find yourself? So I was, again, in Afghanistan, I was working with. Um, small teams who were going out hunting bomb makers as opposed to going out and having to deal with bomb after bomb after bomb. So, yeah, we, I mean, it was tiring in its own way. So sometimes our insertion marches, with a helicopter would fly us in and they would have a long walk through the mountains or across the plains to actually reach the target. So, again, it's, and it's it's still stressful, kind of moving there and moving back, and then some of the dealing devices on target. But then we fly home, and then you normally get some sleep and wait for the next go on the next target. Okay. It wasn't the sheer relentlessness that the the bomb suit operators who were on the teams who were out date who have all the time on the ground. It wasn't as relentless as their pattern of life. Okay. And and when you're going in, so you're you're searching for for bomb makers. Yes. 
and and they'd need and they'd need you on the team. Because... So it's, it's not just bomb makers. Sometimes it was kind of financiers, leaders. So it's basically after the the trying to target the leadership structure yeah. of the Taliban um, or in Baghdad, the Al Qaeda. And so it's the same, same as same as for Baghdad. So it'd be sometimes clearing booby traps on the way into the target or dealing with um, explosive remnants on the target. So maybe suicide vests or uh, bomb making factories or something like that. Okay. So much less likelihood of you being the target, right? Because they wouldn't be expecting no. that. Right. Although sometimes if there are boom traps on the route, it's again, it's not you never know what's there. But again, we're not having to clear, often not having to clear the whole device. We just have to clear it enough for us to get past. Okay. And because we're not actually interested in that device, we're interested in that the, person the behind time. the device. Okay. okay. So it's, my role is more about maintaining the momentum of the assault. So it's about yeah. getting people to the target to do their job rather than actually rendering the device safe and getting the evidence back from that device. Okay. Will you still be taking a suit to No. No. No, I just I would have um just normal body armor, helmets, um, my weapons and then I would carry in um a small pouch of tools, a small bit of uh rope and some of a backpack full of explosives. Okay, because sometimes you'd be blowing up the devices. Or... Yeah, blow up devices or blow up stuff that we've captured and we didn't want to take back with us. Okay. Right. Um, so, if, I mean, if it was a bomb making factory, then I'd, I'd have a kind of forensic collection kit. So, I was also there for technical intelligence, so I could collect samples, okay. but then all the bulk of the stuff just destroy on target. Did you ever come under attack in those assaults? Um, I mean, yeah, there's regular, fire, regular firefights um, to get off the target. Yes. And you'd get involved with those. Or, or would you kind of keep your head down? And... Uh, I, I tend to be one step back. So the, yeah. people, uh, the teams I was with were they were specialists at shooting at people. So, <laughs> right. so um, I mean, at the HMI, I could, yeah, I could fire weapons as well as any normal person in the army. But in those teams, their day job was shooting at people. So why would I? <laughs> right. I just get in the way of that. Right. I see. Okay. Um, so. You, so you've you've done the, so the, you've done the tour of so you started out doing the bomb disposal and then you and then you moved to these these teams yes okay and that was that on two separate tours uh, so I did three tours in Baghdad so the supporting the teams hunting bomb makers yeah so I did three tours in Baghdad okay and then a tour in Afghanistan after that yes where you were doing the yes. bomb disposal or okay. so it's Baghdad and Afghanistan it's the same sort of work it was yeah. that okay doing yeah. with Kind of okay. Clearing boom traps onto the roof and okay. then dealing with stuff on the target afterwards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. okay. Um, and then, and did that? So in the final tour was in Afghanistan. Yes, and that that marked the. So yes, the I end. did um, my last tour there. Uh, it was 2012, and then I went back out for a few weeks in 2013. So yeah, and then so yeah, and then that was my last uh, tour was 2013. And what was the trigger for you? Deciding to leave, kids. Okay. So I I got married in two thousand eleven. Um, so I did, I did my last tour in Baghdad um, in two thousand nine. Well, okay, that's it. I've I've done a lot of bombs, so I don't particularly want to do anymore. And um, got married in two thousand eleven, and then I think I was out of Afghanistan. I'm doing it again by my first anniversary, first wedding anniversary. And I think I was a different operator. It's certainly not taking the risks or um, that I took in Baghdad, I was a lot more circumspect, a lot more likely to blow things up rather than try and pull it apart. And obviously, you don't get quite the results, but I had other responsibilities. Mm. And then we decided, right, we're going to have kids. And uh, my first daughter was born, so right, time to go out of the army. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't just not wanting to operate anymore, it's also chances are I wouldn't have operated again, but I would have had to go on tours again. So, and also doing staff tours, I would have been going away for nine to 12 months at a time. And the young children, I don't want to do that. It's not for a, basically I'd achieved everything I wanted to do in the army. And it's, I didn't well, want you want to a, a rare, somebody with a boyhood dream. Yeah. Who achieved their boyhood dream. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, and now I guess it's, 
ambitions of life are very different now. It's about I've got, got a second daughter now, and it's ambitious now more about you know, how much time can I spend with the kids and yeah, more, more, into, more into kind of ambitions through the kids, kind of, kind of what you yeah. can get a first handstand and stuff like that. <laughs> okay. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.